Welcome to Capital Ideas. This is the podcast where members of the Majority Democratic Caucus in the Washington State House of Representatives sit down at the Capitol and talk about ideas. That's pretty much how I always open these things, but I'm going to leave the script now. Today's Capital Ideas is different from anything we've ever done. If you listen to podcasts, and clearly you do if you're hearing my voice, I'm certain that you're aware of the opioid epidemic that has fundamentally changed life in many American communities and countless American families. That's what today's Capital Ideas is about, but we're not going to talk about this crisis as a big picture, at least not at first. What you're going to hear are two conversations, first with Deborah Mayer, whose only son, Sean, died of a heroin overdose despite the best efforts of many people, especially his family and the person you're going to hear in the second half of today's podcast. That person is State Representative Lauren Davis, who, before she was elected to the House, was largely responsible for the creation of Ricky's Law, which could have and should have saved Sean's life. The conversation with Deborah was recorded in difficult circumstances, both emotionally and acoustically, and the sound isn't going to be the quality you're used to. I hope you'll stick with us anyway. It's only about nine minutes, and I suspect you'll remember the words long after you've forgotten how poorly they were recorded. That's it for the introduction. These conversations were recorded in February and March of 2019, and here they are. Deborah and Don Mayer, I really do appreciate y'all taking a couple of minutes to talk about this really important subject. I think that the best way to start this interview is for you to tell me a little bit about Sean's life. My son had the typical all-American life. He grew up in a home with two sisters. His dad worked for the Space Center in Florida. We're from Florida. And he was a great kid, a freckle-faced fun kid and he did well in school. He was very liked. Um, as he grew up, you know, we ended up having another child and, and Rachel was his little sister and he had a big sister as well. And he took his little sister in and he taught her things and he, we just knew that he was going to be this wonderful father one day. He, um, he spent a lot of time with his little sister. And uh, he was very well liked in school. The teachers liked him. Heck, all the all his friends' moms and dads liked him when he came over because he would always help them out. We had no worries with him. He went on to high school, and he played football one year. He was very much into baseball through his elementary and junior high years, and then uh, he actually played the band. And he earned a Bright Future scholarship, academic scholarship, to um, University of Central Florida, and he was going to start the in, in the engineering field. And uh, that's when he went off to college is when he started taking the opioids, and um, the opioids led to heroin. Was there an injury? I know that most people who go down this road begin with an injury, some legitimate pain for Mm -hmm. which an opioid is prescribed, and then it becomes difficult to stop taking that. No, Sean did not go to a doctor to get his prescription. I think he was probably given it on campus as a typical college student would start experimenting. And I think Sean did, and, and he and I think he felt better about himself somehow or it, whatever it did for him. And it continued on, and um, we were unbeknownst to it at the time until it got real bad. Um, we asked him why. He said he had anxiety, and I said, why didn't you tell me you had anxiety? We could get you some help. And he said, well, I didn't know what it was, Mom. 
After Sean began taking opioids and becoming dependent on them, was there ever a point at which he had to deal with law enforcement? Not at that point. It wasn't until he actually started, I believe, when he was very addicted to it and he was now using heroin and he was shooting the heroin. And um, there was one moment where we were in the hospital with our younger daughter. My husband had cancer. My younger daughter was in the hospital dying from a very rare blood disease. He stayed at home and watched the dogs, but he had stolen some jewelry of mine. That is not uncommon now that I've learned, and um, pawned them for his habit. And that was very out of character for Sean to do. When we came home from the hospital, luckily, thank God, both my husband's in remission and my daughter, and they both were survivors. But we came home to the realization how bad his addiction had gotten. And he even wrote a couple checks that were bounced. He had such a bright future ahead of him. At one time, we didn't want to tarnish it. So we, we kind of enabled, like any other parent would in the beginning, and covered and paid those those checks out so that he wouldn't get in trouble and and, uh, we didn't turn him into the law because he stole from us. What kind of interventions did you seek? Because I know that part of this involves the failure of the system to help with those kinds of interventions. And, And parents are often left basically hanging out there by themselves. What did you start with? My daughter had worked for DCF of Florida and somebody in the area of work that took care of all that stuff got Sean a bed. Before that, he had been in and out of detox, but never stayed stayed um, in recovery. But she did find us a bed there, but he didn't stay the long the duration that he was supposed to. He stayed in the area. He stayed at home at first, but we told him he had to leave because he had a younger sister. And I didn't want that in in our in our home. And um, he came knocking at the door one day and in tears. And we put him on a plane to Seattle. His biological dad I hadn't seen him in a long time, had lived out here, and said he would take him in, and he would get him a job. And he did. He landed a job with Composite Solution. And for a while there, we thought, hey, this is a good. We got him out of an area. Maybe that's what he needed. He needed to get away. You know, little be known to us, it's all over. It's everywhere. You don't get away by moving and, and curing. But we were learning about addiction. We didn't know anything. We were naive in that world. It got really bad here in Seattle when he was here. And we flew out five times to try to rescue him. He had been in and out of hospitals. We would visit him in the hospital and ICU. He would never stay long enough to get better, be very agitated and frustrated and and uh, leave the hospital before um, he had sepsis and he had um, endocardias, he had hepatitis C, um, and in the end he had stage 2 kidney disease, and it was all caused from dirty needles and um, and his drug use. And we kept sending notes to judges in the area. We knocked on every policeman's around the area, Federal Way and and, and near um, King County. We, all our family members came out here at least one time with us. We talked to the policemen and we wrote judges' letters and we, we did everything we could until I found out about the Ricky's Law. And I was very excited, except that 
was probably going to be two years before that was implemented, and I didn't know if my son would survive. What was the arc of this tragedy in terms of time from beginning to... to okay. Um, I would say when he was in college at the age of 19 until um, then he was in our own hometown where we were trying, in Florida, where we were trying to figure all this addiction stuff out. And like I said, we were very naive. We didn't know what we were doing. And he came out to Seattle, I believe, when he was 26, almost, 27, probably. You know, then we started the battle here because we thought we did right by bringing him out here and getting him away that, okay, th this is a good thing. And, um, and then we had a battle with Seattle to try to get, or Seattle, to, with Washington, King County, to try to get him help. When I found out about Ricky's Law, I wrote Lauren Davis, and I was just waiting to hear that the law had passed and praying that my son would not pass. And... He didn't. He's, he lived. However, when the bill came into effect in April, I immediately got on the phone. I think it was the first day trying to get him help with the Ricky's Law. And I guess because of the county that my son lived in, it, um, King County, uh, he was uh, they were unable to help him with the Ricky's Law. And um, that July, he was found in a hotel room with a needle in his arm, overdosed. We want to make a difference in honor of our son, and we want to tell our story, because when you tell your story, you make change. And Sean's life had a purpose. You know, his, his dreams and aspirations were, you know, going to college, having a family. He even told us one time when we were out here, and he says, someday I'm going to have a family. And I said, Sean, you can't have a family if you shoot the heroin. He says, but Mom, I want a family someday. So he had those dreams, but they didn't materialize. And they could have possibly, this trip of ours could have been to celebrate him finishing engineering school or a family or having his first child. But instead it was coming out here because he passed. And we couldn't get the right help. Deborah and Don, I really do appreciate you coming in, and I wish you the best, and I wish you peace. Thank you very much. We just want our son's life to have purpose right now and to help others, and this journey was for something. Now I am with Representative Lauren Davis, who was referred to quite often in the previous part of our podcast today, and I want to ask you first, Lauren, after having just listened to Deborah's description of the life and death of her son, Sean, what's your reaction? I am completely heartbroken. I remember when I got an email from Deborah in 2016 asking for help for her son. She was in Florida. Her son was in, at the time, Highline Medical Center in Burien and in the intensive care unit. And that was the year Ricky's Law ended up passing, but I was still down in Olympia advocating for it at the time. And um, just, I remember praying the bill would pass and praying that Sean would live long enough to be helped by it. And when I learned that he died, I my heart just shattered. I, I mean, her son should still be here. He's 
who we fought for. He's Rick, who Ricky's Law was intended for. He never should have died. Now let's talk about how that happened, because I know that during Deborah's interview, she talked about the fact that in spite of Ricky's Law, which was designed to deal with situations like the one that Sean was experiencing, it didn't work. And there was there's some reason, which I don't understand. Can you tell me what was the snag that somehow allowed Sean to, to fall through the cracks here? There are really three issues, primary implementation issues with Ricky's Law, and they're fairly nuanced. One of them has to do with ambulance transportation rates. So Sean lived and died in King County, and uh, because the ambulance transportation rates are so low and the only Western Washington Ricky's Law facility is in Chehalis, the county was unable to find a private ambulance company to do the inter-facility transport from an emergency department, generally speaking, to the facility. And so they have not been implementing Ricky's Law in large part due to that reason. Another implementation issue had to do with the fact that the designated crisis responders who are the only individuals in our state who can commit somebody involuntarily for mental health or addiction treatment, that they were not always being called for the right patient population. So people like Sean, for whom the law was created and intended to save lives as precious as his, the hospitals were not calling these designated crisis responders when they should. And the designated crisis responders in turn have not always been detaining or committing the right patient population. And the third problem has to do with the fact that the facilities themselves, the reimbursement rate the for care in them is so low that they are not able to take all the patients for whom the law was intended because the patients, some of them have higher needs and the rates are so low that they can't hire enough staff to meet all those patient care needs. And so the facilities end up turning away patients who are at imminent risk of dying because they can't meet their care needs because of this rate issue. So between the rate issue, the ambulance transport issue, and the fact that uh, sort of a it's a sort of education issue around the emergency departments and the designated crisis responders. We've had people like Sean falling through the cracks. In a way, this is like a lot of new state laws, which is there are kinks, there are things that need to be worked out. Usually, they don't have tragic results because it might be a new state law that has nothing to do with something like saving a human's life. But given that Ricky's law is a relatively new law, and that you are now a state representative. I know that one of the things that you're working on really hard this year is what I would call Ricky's Law 2, fixed for these problems that might be small problems, but they could take a human life. Yes, so House Bill 1907 is really intended to address the the policy and, and technical implementation issues, so it directs updated uh, training for the designated crisis responders regarding uh, how the existing criteria for involuntary commitment, risk of harm to self, others, and grave disability to really delineate how those apply to individuals with substance use disorder. Prior to Ricky's law, this patient population, patients who are 
overdosing patients presenting to the hospital with sepsis or MRSA or endocarditis or other life-threatening conditions were not eligible for being detained, were not being detained, and it has been a bit of a shock to the system to, to try to get the system on board with even evaluating these patients for involuntary commitment and, and then getting the process to work as it was intended. So the bill fixes the policy pieces. I also have two budget provisos, one related to increasing the ambulance transportation rates for this particular type of transport, so just for transport to secure detox for Ricky's Law patients so that we don't have counties who are sort of opting out and then also to make sure that we are increasing the reimbursement rates for the facilities so that they can actually take the patients for whom the law was intended. And those patients are, are quite ill. They're suicidal. They are um, sometimes have comorbid medical issues. They need mental health care also. And the rate increase will allow them to really intervene and save those lives. And how's that bill looking? So far, so good. It passed the House unanimously. Uh, with some very uh, lots of bipartisan support, and and then the, the bill is now set to be heard actually this Friday in the Senate Behavioral Health Subcommittee. We've been talking about Sean's story in relation to Ricky's Law, which is a tragedy without question. But there are victories. There have been many victories under this new law that you are responsible for. And just to remind people that this problem is pervasive throughout society, you had an experience involving another lawmaker recently who reached out to you, and there were good results. Can you give us a a kind of an elevator version of that episode? Sure. My colleague in the House, Representative Marcus Riccelli from Spokane, reached out to me regarding a family friend of theirs whose 22-year-old son had nearly died from a heroin overdose and the family was in disarray as every family is when you nearly lose somebody and so I immediately connected with the mom and told her about Ricky's law and walked her through the process and she was able to get her son detained under Ricky's law and he did the 72-hour stay and then the additional couple weeks of care and just like nearly every patient so far who has received care under Ricky's law has elected voluntarily for continued treatment because it was never about people not wanting treatment. It was about people who had lost all hope that they could get better. And if you give people some love and care and stability, people choose recovery and they do recover. And her son is doing incredibly well today and and is in continued care of his own choosing. Sean was I hope an anomaly, and I believe in the future, if this works, Washington will continue to be a leader in the kind of care that we try to offer to people who are in need of involuntary help. So what I want to ask you at this point is, how's Ricky doing? Ricky is doing wonderful. He has six and a half years in long-term recovery. He is working full-time. He just has convinced his employer to let him take off work for two months to go travel Europe because he's young and healthy and wants to see the world. He is happy and lives with joy and is a wonderful uncle to his dozens of nieces and nephews, and he's got a beautiful life. There are good endings. 
They really are. People recover. I appreciate you, and I appreciate the work you're doing to help more people recover. And thank you again, Lauren Davis, for joining me for a couple of minutes here on Capital Ideas. Thank you so much, Dan. That's it for today. If you feel like you got something worthwhile out of the last 18 or so minutes, I encourage you to subscribe to Capital Ideas on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. This is your state government, and today's program is undeniable evidence that what happens here matters. The more you know about how it works, the better it can work for you and for everyone. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thank you for listening.